first Bible reading today is from Daniel chapter 7. It's on page 766. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The second reading is from Revelation chapter 1 on page 1062. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "'Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last.' I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what the lowest point has been in your life. In a moment when you hit rock bottom, empty, helpless, exhausted. Perhaps that's you right now. If you have experienced it, my question is what got you through it? What kept you going? John the Apostle is in that space. 
He's not only at the end of his life, knocking on 90, but he's at the end of his rope. He's on an island in Patmos in the Mediterranean. And that may sound nice at first, right? But he is there sentenced as a criminal for simply being a Christian. And there on that island, he endures taxing labour. He is whipped. He is given insufficient food and clothing. It is bleak. It is barren. It is brutal. And on top of that, everyone that he knows and loves is either gone or dead. That's Stephen, James, friends of his, martyred. Peter, Paul, people he respected, dead. He's the last apostle, all alone on an island. Now, what does John need in this moment? Well, what does he need? Tell you what he doesn't need. Is that an annoying Christian with bad advice, right? Something like, hey, John, let's focus on the positive here. I mean, it could be worse. I mean, at least you've got your life. At least it's the Mediterranean, right? He doesn't need that. He doesn't need to be told, you know, John, maybe you just need more faith and then your circumstances will change. Maybe you just really need to believe in God more and things will change. I mean, remember, this is John who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote the Epistles of John, who beloved by Jesus, right? If you ever need any more reason why the prosperity gospel is rubbish, have a look here at John. You may need a hug, a meal roster, a good lawyer, friends, and they're all good things, right? But you know what God gives him? A vision, a revelation, a grand reminder of who God is and what is to come. But not just to him, right? Notice in verse 10, it gives... He's supposed to pass this on to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, right? These churches were doing it tough. They were scared. They were hopeless. They were exhausted. Some were looking elsewhere in the world. They were heavily persecuted, right? And they needed a vision. But more than that, you, sitting here in this room today, you need this vision this revelation. You who feel the hardship and the suffering of life. You who may be the only Christian in your family or the only Christian in your workplace and you feel like a fool because they tell you you are. You who are wandering, who are waning, who are worried and the world looks very appealing you need this vision. God doesn't think you need a, a course or 10 practical steps or some stats. He wants you to have this vision, to re-see Christ for who he is and what is coming your way. So let's have a look at it, right? A bit of context. Verse 10. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, page 1062. It says this, verse 10, on the Lord's Day, right? So presumably a Sunday, the, the Lord's Day when Jesus rose again, the first day of the week. It says that I was in the spirit, right? Something like a spiritual trance. And notice John doesn't go seeking it, right? The spirit comes to him. And it says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I mean, there's nothing more going to get your attention than something like a trumpet, right, blaring in your ears, right? God, 
doesn't want John to miss the memo. He doesn't want John to miss this vision. He wants John's full attention, and he's got it. Now, before we enter into what John saw, a disclaimer. What John is relaying to us is not a literal description of what happened. It is not a photograph, right? Otherwise, you've got Jesus with a sword as a mouth and red eyes, and that's a bit weird, right? This is apocalyptic, full of imagery, full of symbols to evoke the emotions to point to a truth. I mean, it's like Picasso, right? Here's a picture of one of Picasso's paintings. It's on the screen. If you think the woman that was based on actually looks like that, something is amiss, right? You can see that there's a woman there, but you and I know it's not a literal description, a literal portrayal of a woman, right? That's a bit like apocalyptic literature. It's not literal. It's evoking the emotions to point to a truth, to reveal to you a truth about the future, who God is. So with that in mind, let's step into this vision. Have a look, verse 12. I turned around to see, this is John, the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches. And you notice they're golden. They're they're precious. They're prized. Because the way we see gold is the way Jesus sees his church. Valuable, precious, prized. And notice their, their lampstand, so they're, they're glowing. It's, it's, it's almost like a room full of light, glowing. Because that is what a church is supposed to be, a light to the world. And notice there it goes on. Among those lampstands was someone like a, a son of man. What John is saying there, he's seeing someone that's not human-like, but God-like. The Son of Man, as in Daniel 7, that God himself, and as Jesus referred to himself, he's seeing Jesus amongst his lampstand. That it's, he's, he is the one at the center of these churches, because they're his church. The other day I was driving to church with my kids in the back, and they love to ask the question, who's the boss? Who's the boss of the country? Who's the boss of the state? Who's the boss of the principal? Uh, the school? And uh, they're asking the question, who's the boss of church? Are you the boss of church? And I was like, well, I'm the congregational pastor of 10 and 5. So like, yes, I'm the boss of that. But Paul is like the, the senior. He's the big boss, right, of the whole church. And then Thomas, who's three, said, no, Jesus is the boss of the church, right? Oh, yeah, couldn't argue with that, right? Because he's right. It's his church. He made it. He saved it. He washed us clean. It's his church. And the focus here on these lampstands is all pointing to the church. They are to light to the church, light Jesus Christ, to bring glory to him. But then John sees what Jesus is wearing. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his waist. John knows that what Jesus is wearing is what priests used to wear in the Old Testament. That the gateway to God and the temple was through a priest. And here, this fashion statement of Jesus is telling you one thing. He is the permanent way to God forever. Then John looks up, verse 14. The hair in his head was like wool, as white as snow. Now we may be thinking, okay, he's getting a bit old, maybe he needs to colour it, right? It's because we idolise youth in our culture and we think getting old is a negative thing and we fight against it. 
But when John sees Jesus' white hair, you know what he sees? Wisdom. He sees wisdom. Not all the negatives and the effects of aging, right? They're not there because Jesus lives forever. Jesus doesn't experience the bad back, the dementia, the failed sight. No, no, no. He sees all the riches of aging, experience, knowledge, insight. See, friends, if you collected all the books in the world, all the libraries, all the wise people, all the sages, all the practical advice, it would not even come close to the wisdom of Jesus Christ. He has wisdom in droves. His hair is white as wool. And then John looks into his eyes. And what does it say? His eyes were like blazing fire. And the fear would have welled up in John when he saw that. Because these eyes were piercing. That Jesus doesn't just see you, but he sees the real you. Nothing escapes his notice. The things you've said, done, watched, thought. See, we as people put a lot of effort into covering up so that people don't see the real you. Don't we? We keep things to ourselves. We clear the internet history. We lie to avoid. We get out of things. We deflect attention. We pay someone to, for that to go away. And often we are successful at it. So people see a you, but not the real you. But Jesus sees the real you with his blazing eyes. He knows it all. Nothing can escape. Jesus can't look too, uh, John can't look too long, so he looks down. Verse 15. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. John sees how strong and solid and stable are the feet of Jesus. They ain't going nowhere. It's like a base of a tree that is sturdy and strong. And it may feel like journal article and TV show and, and news report is having a go at Jesus again and again and again. And it may feel like it is tipping. But Jesus is not going anywhere. He cannot be pushed to one side. He cannot be toppled over. He cannot be cut down. Jesus' foundation, his feet is strong. Know that as you scroll through social media. Know that as you turn on your TV. And his voice, John says, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I don't know if you've been to Niagara Falls. I haven't. I've just seen it on YouTube. But all I know about Niagara Falls is the sound is immense with all that water cascading over. And, and that is like the sound of Jesus. It is so overwhelming, so loud that even John, if he was to speak, couldn't even hear his own voice because of the power of Jesus's. And then finally, John notices what's in his hand and mouth. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. In other words, whatever came out of Jesus' mouth was the, the word of God. It was bringing about perfect justice, perfect judgment. See, I presume a number of people in this room have experienced profound injustice, just like John. And often we say, you know, the system here is pretty good compared to other parts of the world. And that's true, right? But often I feel those who are saying the system is pretty good haven't actually experienced the system. But I know a number of people in this room have. You've experienced lawyers and courts and judges, and it has not gone well. 
you've experienced gross injustice. But hear these words that what comes from Jesus' mouth is the word of God. And the verdict is not biased. It is not one-sided. It is not bribed. It is not corrupt. But true justice comes. And then John looks at his face. And his face, what does it say? It's like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Radiance. You know when you see a sunset and it just takes your breath away? You just keep looking and looking. That you don't even pick up your phone. It's that stunning. That is the face of Jesus. This is John's vision. He sees a big Jesus on a small, tiny island. And that is what he needs. And that is what the seven churches need. And that is what you and I need. Now remember, friends, John was with Jesus for three years. He saw his death, resurrection, and ascension. And he still needed this vision. How much more you and I? Because it is so easy to forget the glory of Christ. It is so easy to forget his power and might. Some of us see Jesus more as the baby Jesus, the Christmas Jesus, lying in a manger, tame and timid, and we keep him at arm's length. Some of us see Jesus as the teacher Jesus, you know, his sayings and words. We keep it theoretical. Some of us see loving Jesus, and, and that's a good thing. He is loving, but we just... Treat him almost like a loving mate. But this vision reveals that Jesus, he's not tame. He's not just words. He's not just love. He is God. And it leaves you with a healthy fear, a healthy reality check. You know, in Svalbard University in Norway, it is a prerequisite when enrolling that you do a one-week shooting course before you start and that you carry your gun, a gun every time you leave town. Why? Because in Svalbard, polar bears outnumber people. Even though they've done the course, even though they know the signs, it's amazing how many people in Svalbard still walk out of town without their gun thinking it'll be okay that they've seen a polar bear at SeaWorld. And they think, oh, they're pretty cute. Big mistake. It is a big mistake to turn a polar bear into a teddy bear and think you'll be okay. And the danger is when we do it to Jesus Christ. We turn him to someone who is tame and timid. He is not. It is a big mistake. Jesus, he's not like a politician. You can walk up, give him a piece of mind, have a beer with, yada, yada, yada. No, no, he is more like the sun that you cannot just waltz into the sun's presence and think you'll be okay, right? I mean, we are so far away from the sun. If you spend a bit of time out there, you get burnt by it, right? Let alone getting any closer to it. The son of man, he is God himself. Yes, Jesus is human, but before he took on flesh, he was always God. He was perfect. That shocks our sinful self. He is more permanent than everything else looks flimsy. He is more profound than everything else looks foolish. He is praiseworthy. And this vision, time and time and tells you, to get, tells you again one thing, that though there are a truckload of things that you fear, God wins. He wins. No matter what you are afraid of right now, 
no matter who you are afraid of right now, this vision tells you Jesus wins. He's the one in control. Notice John's reaction. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, that's the normal reaction when people see a taste of the glory of God in the Old Testament. And it would have been your experience if you were in John's shoes. There he is in shock, full of awe, right? On the brink of death. But then he feels something. What does he feel? Verse 17. Then Jesus placed his right hand on me. He felt his right hand upon him. Now I presume two things probably crossed John's mind in that moment. The first is this. Wasn't Jesus just holding seven stars with his right hand and yet he's holding on to me? And Jesus at the same time can focus his attention on the whole church and also focus his attention upon you. You'd be thinking, how is that possible, right? It is impossible for us. It is possible for God. I mean, I can barely focus on three of my kids, right, what their needs are, right? And, and so what do they do? They scream, they yell to try and get my attention, to, for me to look at them, right? But God is not like that. He can focus on everyone and also just you. It is possible for him. That brother and sister, his right hand is upon you. You didn't have to yell and scream to get God's attention. His ears are aimed at you. But probably the other thing John is thinking was, he's just witnessed a holy, perfect, grand, majestic vision of Jesus Christ. And yet, he is touching him. I mean, in this COVID season, right, if you find out someone has COVID who's standing in front of you, what do you do? You do this. Right? You walk backwards, don't you? If somebody said, oh, yeah, I've got COVID, you walk away, right? You don't generally go and give them a hug or a kiss, right? That's how we react when someone's got one disease, right? You and I are sick with sin. And yet... Jesus, as it were, touches John, touches us to say it doesn't matter. Not that it doesn't matter anymore, like that's very old school, but it doesn't matter anymore because your sin is no more. You are washed clean. You are forgiven. And he, in Jesus touching John, is that a reminder, that affirmation. Yes, no, just John knows that he has problems. Yes, these churches have defects. Yes, you and I are a work in progress. But so strong is the Son of God, that his hand is upon you to say, I have not abandoned you. You are holy. You are washed clean. You are perfect in my sight. So, verse 13, uh, 17, do not be afraid. I mean, left to yourself, if it's just you without Jesus, be very afraid, right? But you're with Jesus. Do not be afraid. Why? I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. 
That word Hades is another word for grave. See, Jesus brings up the topic that will silence any dinner party. Death, your death, right? He brings up the fear behind all other fears. And he gives us a comforting truth. You know, I was watching Family Feud. And the topic was, name something you think about every day. Number one was food. That makes sense. Number two was death. Now, that surprised me because we may be thinking a lot about it, but we don't talk about it, do we? We don't share about it. I've never heard this from people's lips. But Jesus speaks into the conversation that you and I are afraid to talk about death, your death, and he offers comfort and assurance. I mean, he starts with himself. Notice he says, I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. That Jesus was the first to experience death, but then rose again, never to die again. And that's great for him, but notice what he holds. He holds the keys of death and the grave. I love that phrase. I mean, you think about your keys. These are my keys, right? There's keys to the car, keys to the house, a couple of other random keys. I don't know what they do, but I can't be too anxious to get rid of them, right? But there's a whole bunch of keys here. Now, we have keys, and some of you are probably thinking, where are my keys, right? They're very precious to us. Because keys tell us we have access and authority. We, have access, we give access of who can come in, who can go. We have authority of whether we sell the thing or, or keep it, right? And so that's why we're very anxious when we've lost them, because all of a sudden you don't know who has access and authority. They're very precious. But that first Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, Death lost, and Jesus took the keys from death, and they are his. He has access of who comes out of death. He has the authority. Death no longer calls the shots. He does. And he tells you the fear behind all fear is death. You do not have to be afraid because he has the keys to your death. So when you go to the grave, you are what one gravestone in Louisiana has on it, which has the word waiting. Waiting. Because you know who has the keys. Let me end by telling you the first movie I ever cried in. It's this one on the screen. I don't know if you've seen it. Who's seen this movie? Oh, a couple of people. Never-ending story. I remember it clearly. I was in year four. And uh, watching this movie, and uh, all I can remember about this moment, this movie, is there's a scene where the boy is with his horse, and the horse somehow sinks into the mud, and it goes down and down, and the boy is crying, trying to pull his horse out, and I'm watching this as if for bawling my eyes out, right? The horse, I mean, he loves the horse, and then the horse sinks into the mud, and right at that moment, the lights turn on, the bell goes, and we all have to leave, right? Now, I never finished that movie. It was only about a year ago when someone told me the ending and said this, you know, James, the horse at the end of the movie comes back, comes back to life, and the boy and the horse are reunited. Oh, it was liberating when I heard that. <laughs> all of a sudden, this movie, which really haunted me, took on a new meaning because I knew the ending. 
And remember, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a spoiler alert, right? God wants you to know the ending. He wants you to know the ending so it changes the way you see your story. This vision is right at the front of the book of Revelation. Why? Because God wants you to know who's the boss, who's the boss of the, of the fears in your life, the boss of the biggest fear of all, death. And He wants you to know who holds the keys to your death. He wants you to know that while you're waiting in the grave, that he's authority to bring you back to life like him and to live forever. That that is your future. A reunion awaits. Life forever awaits. In light of that, you can truly hold on to the words, do not be afraid. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation. And though, as we're seeing, it is different to what we're normally used to, we are, as we saw last week, we are blessed when we hear it, when we read it, when we take heart, take it to heart. We ask, Lord Jesus, knowing that this life is not easy. It is not easy, Lord. And in being a follower of you, we know that persecution, hardship will come. But we thank you for the comfort, this big revelation reminding us that you, Lord Jesus, are not tame or timid, that you, Lord Jesus, are the boss, that you are the king, and we are friends with the king. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would know again and again our future, the future that you've revealed to us, that when we die, that is not the end, Lord, but you, Lord Jesus, have the keys of death and the grave, and that is the beginning. We ask that we would live in light of that for your glory and our good. Amen.